Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I generally say developers want to do three things. They want to solve hard problems at scale. I think the second thing is they want to see that hard problem when they solve it, get put to use. And then the third thing that I think, honestly, is they just don't want to work with jerks. I think if you master those three things and you end up with a very happy product development team. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. Your job as a leader is to unlock the potential of your team. But how do you do that in a way that both contributes to the happiness of your team and success of your business? In this conversation, we discuss how to unlock both developer productivity and happiness with Alan Linewand, SVP of Engineering at Slack. Our conversation covers everything from Alan's core philosophy and approach to developer productivity, the three things he's found that make developers most happy, how to tell if your dev teams are happy, and most importantly, what to do about it, how to translate those principles to a remote and hybrid work environment, and in a crazy, chaotic world, how to be present and context switch effectively. Enjoy our conversation with Alan Linewand. While Patrick and I were preparing for our conversation, I was reflecting on my past experience as a engineering leader sitting in different planning meetings where we often hear the term busting seats. Yeah. So in management, I think it's easy for people to abstract people as a number, but having a more human approach to productivity management actually can unlock the true potential of engineering teams. And that is why we are so excited to have this conversation today to explore more of a human side of developer productivity and provide a fresh perspective. That's great, Jerry. Yeah, I think that being able to think about not just butts and seats or individual team members or numbers on an R chart, but being able to have the empathy to understand what the teams are doing and being able to think about how do we make them successful? Because that, that's your job as a leader. Your job as a leader is to take the resources that you have at your disposal, apply them to the business needs, but do it in a way that allows everyone to be successful. No one wants to be in a role where they can't be successful. No one wakes up and says, I can't wait to go to work and do a horrible job. And they, everyone has the best intent in mind. And it's your job as a leader to sort of take that potential, unlock it, and let them be productive. And one of the keys to that, as you mentioned, is sort of like this world of developer productivity and, and making the world easier and pleasant to get your job done in. No one wants lots of roadblocks and hurdles to get their job done. So when Jerry and I were thinking about how should we approach this conversation, because I think there's so many different subtopics we can go into about this. <laughs> so I think we wanted to start from a high level to sure. get a sense of your perspective or how you approach developer productivity in general, is there a certain story or experience that comes to mind for you when you think about the challenges or or issues related to developer productivity from your experience? Yeah, I think 
there's a lot of them. But as, as I was thinking about this question, as you were saying, it is sort of trying to come up with one story or one event. And I don't think there's one. I think there's a cyclical pattern of things you see that happen. The cyclical pattern is there'll be a development team, they'll be working on something, they're working on a deadline, and they make some assumptions about the tooling and the frameworks and the testing and the infrastructure that's there to help them get their job done. And as a developer, you think about the code. And yes, then you think I need to run a PR and I need to push it and I need to run some tests and I need to merge it and I need eventually to deploy it. But what you really worry about is the code. And what you don't want to end up happening is all that other scaffolding and infrastructure to get in your way. So I can think of lots of events whereby a team is getting ready to push something, a team is trying to do a bug fix, a team is trying to get a feature out the door, and now the test framework has failed. Or now the ability to integrate has failed. Or now the deployment mechanism or the experiment framework that turns on that new feature for a particular cohort has failed. And those are the events where you realize how important it is to have the scaffolding and the support infrastructure around developers to make them as productive as they need to be. Whether it's unit tests, whether it's functional tests, whether it's end-to-end -end tests, whether it's integration frameworks, whether it's code scanning, looking for security issues, or actually deployment tools or experimentation, A-B testing, launching things in light mode versus dark mode. All these things in some way or another can affect how productive developers can be. So I don't think there's one exact moment that hit me, Patrick, but there's definitely repeated events where I'm like, yeah, that's right. Oh man, now I gotta go figure that out. Oh wow, the test framework's down. We have to get this feature out. Oh wow, we're in the middle of the incident. We gotta get this bug pushed out, but the deployment tools are broken. So how do I how do I figure that out? Or GitHub is having an issue, or maybe we're having an issue with GitHub. I don't wanna blame them. Maybe we're having an issue with our integration to GitHub. So. How do I get past that? What's the backdoor? What's the emergency merge lever I can pull? There's repeatedly sort of experiences I have where we have to think about the golden path doesn't work, the happy path doesn't work, and now what are the backup paths? So that means when we build these systems, we always think about, okay, that's great, but what if that's down? Now what? And, and that's sort of the experience that I take away is we always ask ourselves, okay, if that testing framework is down and we have to merge, how do we get through it? So that's the one thing I think about is always trying to think through the various pieces of the entire development productivity lifecycle and making sure that we have both a happy path and maybe a not so happy path to get through it in times of crisis. Yeah, that's also resonant going back to the early point you mentioned, like when you uh, talk to potential engineering leaders to embark on a path, also think about the, the downside of it or the, yeah. the challenging part of it when things did not work out. I think that's always just about risk mitigation, right? So you're talking about risk as a manager, risk as a developer, risk as a product company scrum team trying to get something out the door what are the various risks you could encounter and you hope you never have to deal with those risks but you know we all buy insurance for a reason so we buy insurance because we think there could be risk and when you think about developers and developer productivity if you think about the risks and get ahead of them then you make people more productive so the natural follow-up question that comes to my mind when we talk about understanding the life cycle and determining different systems to be able to navigate the happy and the unhappy path. <laughs> what would you say is your approach to managing developer productivity? What are some of the essential components that you consider when you're helping build out that strategy? I think one of the key things that we think about is obviously building the right tooling. So what is the tooling that developers want? What I find doesn't work very well is when you prescribe thou shalt use this 
IDE. Thou shalt use this test framework. Thou shalt use this particular set of integration tests. A lot of this is very code-based dependent, whether you're working in Java or whether you're working in Kotlin or whether you're working in other code. So we need to think about different types of code bases, the needs those different types of code bases have and the tool sets that apply to those, whether you're writing in Swift or, or whatever you're writing in. So, you know, one of the things that we think about to make developers happy is to come up with that happy path is what is the tool chain that applies to their environment? What is the tool chain that allows them to be most productive? And even if it's not a uniform set of tools that every team is using, we try and apply a uniform set of metrics to that. Those uniform set of metrics would be like, how long does it take to get a development environment? Uh, how long does it take me to check in code? How long does it take me to run my set of unit tests and integration tests? How long does it take me to actually merge my code back into main or master? How long does it take that master code to be integrated and then get ready for deploys? And how long does it take to get deployed? And a SaaS model like here at Slack, we can deploy in minutes. Maybe you're building something for the App Store or the Android or the Play Store and those deployment cycles are weeks. But again, if you sort of measure each of those increments as people go through that entire workflow of being a developer, that's where we try and optimize, regardless of the code base and the tool set or the tool chain that they're using. And that's what I think you make people happy. If you're a developer, you know, you want to be able to get a development environment quick. You want to be able to have it integrated into your favorite tool chain. You want to be able to start pushing code and getting code tested. You want to merge it in as fast as possible. And you want to get deployed without a whole lot of, you know, headaches and concerns about if the deployment is going to be successful or not. So being able to sort of look at the various steps in that workflow and then think through what are the tools and the metrics you can look at at every step along the way is how we think about it. That's, that's the overarching philosophy we have in terms of helping people be productive. I generally say developers want to do three things. They want to solve hard problems at scale. What I mean by hard problems, that could be a single algorithm. It could be a literally a scale to millions of endpoints for the problem. It could be a ML, AI model you're building, but they want to generally solve a hard problem. I don't think any developer wakes up and goes, yeah, I'm going to go do some easy stuff today. They just want to be mentally challenged and they want to work on a hard problem. I think the second thing is they want to see that hard problem when they solve it, get put to use. Again, it could be used by one person, it could be put to use by a million people, but they want to see it deployed in use. And then the third thing that I think, honestly, is they just don't want to work with jerks. So if you think about like happy developers, it's how do we get them into the code base, solving the hard problem, solving the problem at scale? How do we show them that that's not a science project that's going to live in a dark corner that's never going to see the light of day? And how do we put them on a team that supports them? I think if you master those three things, then you end up with a very happy product development team. And then you combine that with you know, the metrics and the analysis of that entire pipeline and continually measuring and analyzing that entire pipeline is important. One of the examples I'll give you is we have a monthly meeting, which we go over our developer metrics. And we go over a lot of the metrics I'm talking about right now. We go over what are the build times on Android and iOS and Windows and Mac OS and all the other platforms we support uh, here at Slack. Then we go over, great, what's the time to merge? Uh, but then we go, what's the time to deploy? What's the time to actually between releases that we're actually able to get a release out? Um, and we measure these in discrete elements and we talk about them. And sometimes we say, time to get a development environment, we want it to be under a minute. And we go, great, we got it under a minute. That's super exciting. But the question asked then is, can we get it to 10 seconds? So I think that you always have to push the limits. And I think if you build a, a set of infrastructure and tooling and a developer environment where the developers know you're on your side and you're always fighting to make their 
path to writing fun code, you know, getting it deployed and not dealing with jerks, basically, I think they'll be happy and supportive of the environment and it'll be a super exciting place to work. You were talking about different productivity metrics. What are some of the important conversations that should be happening around those dev metrics that also help better account for the people involved in producing those metrics? One of the fallacies about metrics is they're there to sort of be the overwatchers or sort of the you know, metrics police. Um, metrics are just numbers. I mean, metrics are a vehicle to get to the right answer. So I think that some of the important metrics that we look at to get to the right answer are, again, things along the lines of how quickly can a developer get an environment? How quickly can they get tests written? How quickly can they get a build deployed? How quickly can they get that code merged? How quickly can they get things out there? And we, we measure this thing called cycle time. And cycle time in our world is literally from the moment that you write the first epic slash story slash idea about the code all the way until the code is deployed. And sometimes that cycle time can be hours or minutes, and sometimes it can be months and months. But it's important to be able to understand every component of that cycle so that way you can always be optimizing it. And I think if you present it to developers as the metrics for measuring are there because we want to make your lives more productive, we want to make it easier for you to get the job done and do the stuff you love, then it's not about why are you measuring me and what's this metric about? It comes with a an honest, empathetic view of we want to understand what's holding you up. And by understanding what's holding you up and where things are being slowed down in the process, we can improve it. Now, you have to back that up by actually doing the improving. You can't just talk about it. You actually have to deliver on the improving. And that's where sort of like the engineering part comes in. We had a situation at Slack back in, I don't know, months ago, probably over a year ago in COVID times, it's been the whole mess, where we couldn't get our development environments to our engineers as fast as we liked. So we put a conservative effort around faster developer environments. And now... When we survey people and say, are you able to get a development environment fast enough? That's never a top survey response and complaint. So the other part of your question is, we actually do run surveys asking people about pain points on a regular basis. We have a quarterly developer productivity survey. And then we actually also run other intermediate surveys because as we are making changes to the environment to make them more productive and to give better tooling and to have different systems in place, we ask people, what do you think about this? Is this useful? Is it not useful? And, and we try and, you know, quickly iterate based upon that feedback. So the, the short answer to your question is we hold monthly meetings to understand the various metrics and hold ourselves accountable to pushing those metrics in the right direction. And then the second thing we do is we do ask questions because we think, hey, we just moved build times from, I don't know, 10 minutes to three minutes. Did anyone notice or care? Was that really important? We thought it was important, but was that just when people like to go, you know, get an extra cup of coffee and now that the build that finishes quicker, they don't care? Or do they actually care? We want to understand that in a way that suits the needs of our customer, which is really developers from the developer productivity point of view. When you're looking at those, are there certain inputs or things you're looking out for? And how do those, the qualitative and quantitative inputs change or impact your decision-making with the organization in terms of how you're prioritizing or allocating or changing the structure of the organization? We'd love to dive just more into your thought yeah, process yeah. with that. And just a little bit deeper on those, um, for each of those metrics, we look at the P50, the P90, and the P99 of each of those metrics. A lot of people, when you look at the P50, sort of the median number or the average number, the, the details can get lost. You know, hey, the average build time across iOS is seven minutes. Looks great. Sounds reasonable. But the P90 is, you know, 42 minutes. Like, what the hell is going on there? What happened? 
So I think the way we, we think about things is we, we spend a lot of time looking at the data. We spend a lot of time understanding the data and understanding the pain that people are feeling. We also spend a lot of time thinking about the actual process that people are going through and making sure that we understand exactly why they're feeling what they're feeling. Let me give you an example. We were looking at one particular team and we saw the cycle time, the time from when the epic was written until when the code got deployed was fairly well extended. That team was a bit of an outlier. We couldn't quite figure it out. As we dug in deeper to that team, we found out the number of epics assigned per person was 2x the number of epics assigned per person on all other teams. So basically, this team was essentially piling on and making teams multitask and sort of not have that quantitative downtime to figure out the problem and solve things. So each one of these team members was slowed down. The cycle time for all n epics, where most other teams was n divided by two epics, was actually a lot slower just because we had to process a whole bunch more things at once for each individual team member. So we gave guidance to that particular team. Given you're, you're at the P90 sort of, if you will, epics per person in that particular metric, why don't you come back to the P50, make it n divided by two, and let's check your cycle time. And sure enough, the cycle time went down significantly. The team got things done. Maybe not, they didn't have as many things in flight, but the ones that they did on flight got done properly. And that was just a simple use of a metric looking at number of epics per person, and then being able to help them understand that metric was helping drive long cycle times. It wasn't about tooling. It wasn't about developer productivity in terms of like code faster and type faster or things like that. It was just about a managerial style, being able to let people focus, get their jobs done better. You measure the other side of the productivity, uh, as you mentioned, how fast they code. No, no, we don't do that. <laughs> we hear a lot of complaints that people have concerns being measured on those metrics. What's your advice for people are still doing that? We don't look at, you know, lines of code submitted or PRs. We don't have a PR rate. We obviously look at PRs per dev because we just want to understand what's going on, but we don't have a expected number of PRs per dev per hour, day, week, or anything crazy like that. We don't look at tests per team or code coverage by tests because a lot of those metrics, when people understand what they're being measured on, they game them, right? Like my favorite one in the past is we used to say, every PR must have a test and must have a passing test. So great, we found people writing, you know, test one, return one, return, and that was it. So it's just the test just returned one and that was the end of it. Then they could say, check, we have a test per PR. People don't have bad intention. No, no engineer wrote that because they're like, I got them. I'll figure out a way to screw this metric up. They did it because they went to get their job done. They're just like, okay, I got to check that box. So that was a, a bad example of a policy or a metric that was sort of being enforced for no good reason. So to your point, Jerry, I think being able to manage my metrics is not the goal here. The goal is to have a better understanding of that developer workflow using metrics to gain that understanding and then focus your efforts to remove pain each step where it does exist in that workflow as you can. Metrics aren't about measuring productivity or grading someone. I've never been involved in an engineering calibration promotion discussion that had a, well, this developer did this many PRs. It's never been part of my career. And if that ever happened, I, I don't know what I'd do, but I would, I would object violently. So that's not really part of what has to, has, has to has happen. What has to happen is you have to ask yourself if this team is not as productive, team A is not as productive as team B, what's in team A's way? What can we do to help them? Are they having trouble writing tests? Are they not getting the regression paths that they passes that they need to through the test suite? Are they having 
an IDE that they're using that doesn't integrate well with our backend systems? Is there something else there that's slowing them as they go through this cycle time to being productive? I guess my advice, if you're measuring and managing engineering teams by metrics, I think you're missing the point. Metrics can give you information about the car you're driving, but they don't drive the car. What I find fascinating about the point you share is that all the management and metrics are around developer experience, and that eventually leads to better engagement. So they feel more empowered. I think that's definitely the right path. Yeah, I mean, we have a we have a team, we have a developer productivity team who's responsible for our quality engineering practices, our developer frameworks, our developer environments, our testing frameworks. And in some organizations, again, not ones I've been involved in, thankfully, but I've heard that the quality teams and the development teams are almost adversarial. That's not the way things should be. Developers should want to invest in quality. Quality should want to invest in development teams. Productivity should overlay both of those in order to make them successful. Because at the end of the day, you want to produce a product that people love, that comes to market fast, and you don't have to work with people better in that adversarial relationship. When you were talking about the three things that developers want, and that for your role as an engineering leader to help them spend more time doing the things that they really want to do, in the conversations that you're having with the different leaders or different developers, how do you bring back the metrics that you're measuring back to helping reinforce, ultimately, this is all about what you want to do and what you want to achieve as a developer? Is there a way that you approach or reinforce that conversation? A little bit. You know, you want to work at scale, you want to ship, and then you don't want to work with jerks or you don't want to work in a productive environment. It's probably the more polite way of saying it. We do produce a Jira dashboard that sort of starts to talk through those first two. So we have a Jira dashboard that does talk about, are you working on the certain problems at scale? So that lists epics per person, velocity of accomplishing story points and burned out charts and all those things you'd have in there. There's that portion of that Jira dashboard, some picture in my head. And then there's the other part of the Jira dashboard, which is like the ability to deploy and then to deploy go out and are there incidents from that? Are there incident remediation action items as a result of that deploy? Did an incident occur? And do we have some action items we need to follow up on? So there's like the yin and the yang of that that we do provide. So every team gets sort of like this developer productivity dashboard. Probably the manager looks at it fairly regularly. I'm not so sure all the devs do, but that's okay. They don't have to. They just want to be focused on their code and focused on their stories and their epics, and they want to know that they can deploy. But the manager should sort of have that dashboard visibility in terms of what are we working on? What's our velocity looks like? Are we being held up because of some portion of the developer productivity pipeline? And then are we producing things that when they get out and get deployed that are causing customer pain? And if so, how do we weave and balance that feature versus quality balance a little bit within my team? So that's what we want our engineering managers thinking about. And so it's important to give them the tools to look at that and look at those specific metrics. Again, I think of it as like you're driving the car, you're flying the plane, you know, you're still doing the driving, you still know where you're going, but the data gives you some indication of how well you're doing along the way. But, you know, I don't, I never drive, you know, from here to my mom's house and say, that was a good drive. I went 4.3 miles and 62 miles. And I don't talk about the metrics. I just say whether the drive was pleasant and crash-free, right? And that's a fascinating analogy. I just came up with it. Seriously. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you, you think about that, right? You don't ever get off a plane flight and think about the metrics of it. The pilot's staring at the metrics the whole time, but you as the passenger, the one that's using that facility, you know, you really care about, was it on time? And did I get me there? And was it? Crash free. Are the managers accountable for improving the metrics to create a, a better environment for developers to be productive? They're not responsible for improving their metrics. 
there's no judging of managers based upon the metrics. There's judging of managers based upon the product they produce or the infrastructure they're rolling out or in the developer productivity team, the tools they produce to help that. So there's no manager scorecard based upon these metrics. These are just tools we want to give managers in order to help them make their teams more productive or understand where there might be out of balance. Maybe you have too many folks, like I said, too many ethics assigned to a person. Maybe you've got too many incident remediation action items that you need to burn down that are coming up due because there's SLAs on those. You have to divert some resources, but there's no scorecard where, you know, every line's a manager and we sort of have any sort of metric against that. There's nothing with that. I think that'd be counterproductive. That's not the idea. The idea isn't to judge one team versus another or one team's productivity versus another because every team is working on different things, but it's to understand how to make each team productive. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I love the analogy that you shared about when you drive to your mom's house, you don't care, but that it was 4.3 miles at 60 miles an hour, but it's about, was it a pleasant experience? Yeah. The next question I have is related to people's, I guess, experience of, of doing the work or producing the, the metrics and diving more about like developer happiness. How do you understand if your dev teams aren't happy or if like their experience of work isn't going well and what do you do about it? Yeah. Well, fortunately here at Slack, we have a tool called Slack. And our developers are not shy about using it. It's probably the nice way of saying <laughs> it. So we do have channels that allow folks to air grievances and speak to the issues that we're seeing about their productivity and tooling or testing or frameworks or other processes that aren't working for them. We do also, like I said, on a monthly basis, we do aggregate these metrics and we do look at them all the way up through the entire engineering leadership chain to understand what is happening in the environment. and. Sometimes that could be seen as a little bit of a 10,000 foot view, but I think it's important to always drill down to those areas that are not working well and get in and understand what we're doing to fix it. So, you know, we have a lot of leadership support from the top to drive that down. And then I think the other thing that we do a lot is, as I mentioned earlier, we do run maybe too many, but we do run surveys and are trying to plot a line. So the first survey data is interesting, but, you know, the third or fourth is more relevant because you can sort of plot the line of, what's in your way, what's most productive. One of the things that we see in some of our environments is we have a set of what we call flaky tests. So tests that you run them in pass one, N percent fail, you run them again in pass two, and you know one third of N fails. So you could assume that 60% of those tests aren't giving you a good signal. So we saw that signal come to us in the metrics. We heard that feedback come to us in surveys. We saw it in channels inside of Slack. And then we put some projects in place to significantly lower flaky tests. So the testing frameworks itself and the infrastructure, testing infrastructure in terms of the services it consume, the infrastructure it consumes gives good signal to noise as opposed to just a whole lot of noise. And then we run surveys afterwards and say, okay, we think we improved test flakiness by 50%. Do you feel like that's better now? And we ask people for qualitative 
empathetic feedback as opposed to just qualitative metric feedback. What happens when the survey result does not align with the goal that was triggered the effort? What are the things that can help you to debug and continue? Yeah, I think the answer is go back to the drawing board. So then it would be, you know, hopefully we'll get some good qualitative feedback. You know, most of our surveys have boxes, text boxes that people type in. And we'll go back to those individuals and say, we want to understand more. We want to understand why this didn't help. We understand the tooling that maybe that's helping you. We understand the environment that maybe your code isn't building fast enough. Tell us more about this. We're naturally curious in the engineering team here at Slack and most of the engineering teams I've, I've worked on. We're naturally curious. We naturally want to make things better. And, you know, I think the short answer is, like I said, we have this developer metrics meeting every single month. And I can't think of any month where we're like, well, everything's great. Our job here is done. It's always, there's more to get done. There's always more to dig into. So what would happen, Jerry, specifically is let's imagine we had, I'll make it up. We had, we had decreased iOS build time by 50%. We thought, great, that's awesome. We're done. And then we go survey the iOS, iOS developers and they go, our build times are horrible. Then we would have to go back and say, did we miss the mark there? We decreased it from you know X to X over two. And then you know we might hear, yeah, but when I worked at Google, when I worked at pick, pick your favorite company, it was X over 30. We're still eight orders of magnitude longer than we should be. That's news to us. We'd have to go figure that out. We've had had certain events like that occur. And it's sort of like you do what I call the tilty head. You kind of go, hmm, okay. And then you try to understand a little bit better and circle back again. And just like every engineering or every process that's out there, it's iterative. And we, we, don't, we don't think of one loop. We keep thinking of looping over and over again, trying to continue to refine things. That's the craft. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? I mean, there are certain projects that are done, but I don't know of a lot of code on the planet that people go, I am done. I never need to refactor or re-engineer that ever again. There's always something that needs to be done. Another scenario, Alan, what happens when productivity metrics go up and it looks like things are going well, cycle times are shortening, or the other ways that you're measuring performance are going up, but... Mm -hmm the qualitative feedback from developers is that it's decreasing or that it's going down. So productivity up, happiness down. How do you typically handle a situation like that? Hmm. It can happen. I, I guess if I was presented with that situation for a particular team or set of teams, I have to go look at some other things, some other ways of understanding what's going on. I'll give, I'll give you an example. Here at Slack, we had a pattern over the past year where people were not having enough time to sort of spend time to actually doing coding. And when we actually went back and surveyed our developers, they were saying they didn't have enough time to do deep thinking. So we did a little bit of data analysis. We, we queried people's calendars and then we found out, you know, the average developers are doing this many meetings a week and they actually don't have more than two or three blocks of two or three hours the entire week where they can just sit down and code, like just hands down and code. Because there's a company meeting and there's an all hands, there's a team meeting, there's a something. So we actually devised something we call maker time here at Slack. So this is an example of what we did. And we said, I think it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for three hours in the morning for all individual contributors, no meetings, full stop, like scheduled time around that. And that's an example where we felt like we we're moving into a productivity bar in the right way, but people still weren't feeling productive. So we went back and said, what else is there in the system we could look at? And the survey results told us, I don't get enough time to focus. I don't get that focused time. I can't get in the flow. Okay, great. So we instituted maker time. Now for managers, that's hard to do because you've got interviews and all sorts of other things. So we didn't do it for managers, but we did it for ICs. 
And generally that's been well received. We've been running that for a number of months now. And there's time zones issues we had to deal with because, you know, in the morning in San Francisco is in the afternoon in Dublin and it doesn't really work well with Pune in India, but, you know, we've tried to adjust a little bit. But I think that the way to think about your question, Patrick, is look outside of what you're currently been measuring, see if there's other things that could be affecting that happiness or discontent, ask a lot of questions, and then see if you can devise an answer to put it together. Will make your time here at Slack last forever? Don't know. Do certain people, and I think the natural inclination of engineers to be cynical, so maybe if you're listening to this, you're like, great, I'll just sleep in for three more hours in the morning during my maker times and say, no, I don't have meetings. Okay, that's what makes you productive. Great. I, I don't prescribe that and how people use that time. I just want them to have that time in order to be more productive and see if that actually correlates to them being happier. Yeah, every developer wants to get in the flow zone uh, as, yeah. as much as possible and apply to a lot of people as well. Our, our team has been sort of trying that because we're a small team, a lot of meetings and just making small changes that definitely helps a lot for focus and engagement. Yeah, I sometimes wish I could have that time. I look at my calendar every day and say, <laughs> I wish I could have two or three hours, but that's not my job. My job isn't to get into that flow, but I do sometimes personally do try and block out I call it catch-up time. So I'll block out two or three hours. And to me, it's the flow of getting into messages and emails and, and you know, sort of reviewing the documents that are longer that do require concentrated time. So I, I definitely get the benefits of that. It definitely makes me feel more productive, even in my, my limited amount of individual contributor mode that I get to do here. One thing I want to acknowledge, Alan, is like in, in our interactions, it feels like you do a really incredible job of centering yourself and when you switch from different engagements, because I feel like whenever we've had different conversations and meetings, you've just come from something, but immediately you were zeroed in and focused and totally present. And I think that's such a hard thing to do, the task switching and then to be centered and totally engaged in the things that you do. Do you have a secret that helps you in between <laughs> some of those fast-paced experiences? Yeah, I mean, part of my job is to context switch incredibly hard. I was just looking at my calendar. You know, on average, I have 12 to 14 meetings a day. So I have two secrets, if you will. Well, one of them is I, I keep a, a physical list. So I have this notebook and every day, every day I write down my list of tasks that I'm working on. At the end of the day, I look at the tasks that are completed. I take the tasks that are not completed. I put it on a new sheet of paper. I guess I could do it and pick your favorite tool, but I just happen to be a pen and paper guy, but on a new sheet of paper. And what it allows me to do is be in the moment and be present because I know that anything that I'm worried about or anything that I have to do is in a spot and I know where to get it. So for me, it allows my brain not to wander and be thinking about that past meeting. Oh, I got to do this and this and this off the previous meeting or wait, I have a meeting prepared for, so I have to be thinking about three other things. I just know that it's always there. Like this is my crutch and I can go there. The other thing I'll, I'll tell you that I do do is I do meditate. I try and meditate at least 10 minutes a day. I won't tell you I hit every day, but I will tell you, I do try and give my mind time to be still and quiet because i think that does allow you to train your brain train that muscle to be able to switch from a crazy chaotic world to a still world and then go back again um, and i think just that context switching and that forcing your brain to exercise that muscle memory no pun intended uh is super useful one of my favorite quotes from different meditation teachings is how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so I feel like the practice of meditation is a metaphor for how you essentially task switch in that how you meditate is probably also how you context switch and task switch. Yeah, I'm not a great meditator. I've, I've only been meditating for a couple of years. I won't profess to be anything but a novice. But I will tell you that 
I sometimes force myself, like, I think there's a quote, and I'm going to completely butcher the quote, but I think it's something by Gandhi, something along the lines of, I had a really busy day and I couldn't meditate for my hour, so I'm going to meditate for two. He forced himself to take the time. So I do force myself sometimes to take that 10 minutes, even in the middle of an incredibly busy day. And I think that does train me to sort of like, as you say, Patrick, context switch, know that anything I have to do that's critically important will be in my notepad, in my Slack channel, in my notes doc somewhere. And it'll just be there waiting when I get back. I don't have to remember it because that's what I find I think about a lot is the things to do post the meeting or the things to do pre the meeting. And if I can clear my mind of those activities because I know they're somewhere else, it helps me. And I think the other trick about context switching, and again, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I think make shorter meetings. I try not to have meetings that are more than half an hour. I try and force my meetings to be shorter, half hour, which means more of them, but also means we're more focused on the right things. I sometimes find people want to have hour meetings with you that really could, we, we've all had this experience. You have an hour long meeting and you realize that could have been 10 minutes because you just had to get to the point. When you force people to have a shorter meeting time with you, that in turn forces them to focus the conversation, which means you get to the point faster. Technically, do half hours. Much shorter than half hour is hard, but sometimes they do 15 minutes. But hour-long meetings are, are rare for me. I had one more question, follow-up to some of the comments that we had talked about earlier, talking about metrics and identifying which ones are the most effective. How do you identify metrics that may be indicating the wrong thing or incentivizing the wrong behavior? You know, when some of the examples you shared earlier referencing different people trying to game the system, how do you identify that a metric is serving the wrong purpose or indicating the wrong thing? You know, one of the things that you find if you have a metric that is consistently hitting its target without effort, without concentrated focus, then you ask if you're really measuring the right thing. So... There are certain cases we set up metrics for ourselves. We have quarterly metrics, we use OKRs, we set up KRs. And if you find out in the first week of the quarter, you're hitting that KR. And then the next 11 weeks of the quarter, you're kind of cruising. The question you ask yourself is, did we really set the right metrics here? Conversely, it's also true. If you have a team that's killing it to try and hit a particular KR for 12 weeks and they don't come close, then you ask, did we really hit the right, did we really set the right KR? I guess it takes practice, it takes iterative cycles, and it takes trial and error. I don't think there's necessarily a formula I have for doing that other than try it out. If it feels like it's a good, earnest effort to get there, then you're probably doing the right thing. If it's too easy or too hard, then we might think about changing that metric a bit. So with everything we've talked about so far today, you know, now a lot of our workplaces are evolving into this post-COVID world. And a lot of the norms being established by companies are trending more towards remote and hybrid contexts. Do you have any insights related to how some of the principles that you've shared here translate or impact dealing with a more remote or a hybrid world? I, I think that one thing you need to think about if you go into a more remote or more hybrid world, which I think is definitely here to stay, is to understand how do you communicate about these metrics to your team members. I mentioned that we use Jira dashboards here. We use Slack channels, obviously. We post information via bots and apps into Slack all the time. Like this shouldn't be a you know a set of dashboards that a select number of people can see in a dark room somewhere in a corner or behind a passkey. This should be metrics that are fully visible, fully transparent that anyone in the org can see. And all the metrics I'm talking about, they're not in private channels anywhere. They're out there for everyone can see. And I think that the way you think about the remote world, the world of hybrid, is you democratize both location, access, and the metrics themselves. And you just make them applicable and available to everyone. 
that's one thing I think I'd really encourage people to do is as they're building these frameworks, as they're building these tool chains, as they're finding these bumps in the road, share them, be transparent about them because it's going to matter to someone who's sitting at home to feel connected. It's going to matter to the folks that are maybe in an office or offices to be able to collaborate together. It's going to make the entire team feel inclusive if you share the metrics and everyone has the same visibility. And I think that will benefit everyone, no matter where they're working or how they're working. In other words, a transparency or the level of transparency is a multiplier to engagement to productivity. I think so. In the remote and hybrid world. Yeah. I mean, I think if you assume that you won't be able to bump into people in the hallway or the elevator or the kitchen or wherever your office has where you to have those ad hoc conversations, how do you facilitate those ad hoc conversations in other mechanisms? Well, you can facilitate them by having the, the data available and then allowing people to chat and Slack about them. You can facilitate them by having you know, messages that are being sent or Zoom calls where you sort of don't really care where people are sitting or don't really care if they happen to be in the right room. You know, Using the, the Hamilton quote, you don't have to be in the room where it happens. You can actually be anywhere and get the same data and that room can be anywhere on the planet as long as you have the right tools and the right way to make that, that data available to everyone. The goal of, of having data and understanding this developer workflow and where the pain is, is not to hide it and then go in a back room and fix it. It's to expose it, to let people bring their ideas. It's to let them understand that you see the pain or the success that they're having and to celebrate both uh, equally and transparently. And I think being able to do that across the organization is, is hard, but super powerful to be able to like stand up and say, here's where we're at. Here's the good and here's the bad. Here's what we're working on together. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways from our conversation with Alan Leinwand. Your team is more than your metrics, and your job as a leader is to unlock the potential of your team. And in a world of developer productivity, what that means is creating the scaffolding, the risk mitigation, and the support infrastructure around your team to make their lives easier. Your team is more than your metrics, and your job as a leader is to unlock the potential of your team. And in a world of developer productivity, what that means is creating the scaffolding, the risk mitigation, and the support infrastructure around your team to make their lives easier. Allen's essential components to developer productivity build the right tooling. Is what you're using what your developers want versus what you prescribe? What's the right tool chain that allows them to be the most productive? Establish a uniform set of metrics. Allen and Slack look at the different components of cycle time and review each step in their developer workflow to find the opportunities to optimize. From Alan's perspective, developers want three things. To solve hard problems at scale, to see their solution to that hard problem put to use, and to not work with jerks. If you master those three things, combined with metrics and analysis of the development pipeline, you'll end up with a very happy and productive dev team. Remember, the goal is not the metrics. The goal is to understand developer workflow. To help your team understand they are more than the metrics, tell them that you're using metrics to understand what's holding them up and to see where things are being slowed down so that you can remove their pain where it exists and make their life easier so that they can then focus on the stuff that they actually love. How do you know if your dev teams are happy? Create spaces for your team to share their grievances, like on Slack. Aggregate your metrics through the entire engineering leadership chain monthly to get a high-level view of your developer flows and where things might be stuck at a high level. And use consistent surveys. 
the combination of metrics, Slack channels, and consistent surveys will give you a holistic view to make sure that you're addressing the most important problems for your dev teams. And to apply all of these principles effectively in a remote and hybrid work environment, you need to democratize the location, access, and visibility of your metrics. Democratizing your metrics will make your team feel connected, included, and allow them to better collaborate, which will increase your developer productivity and happiness. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. Share your favorite episode with a fellow engineering leader or send us an email with your feedback and any ideas that you might have for the show. We would love to hear from you. Or you can also leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're tuning in from. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. In addition to our events and podcast, we also launched the ELC Peer Group Program. Peer groups provide a safe space to uncover solutions to your challenges from a thoughtfully curated group of your peers. You may have heard me reference some of the different challenges that we've tackled in those groups during one of our episodes. It's not too late to join. ELC's peer groups are ongoing and you can jump in at any time. But the sooner you join the program, the sooner you'll be able to connect with other leaders who can help you solve your real challenges. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.